Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series. It's Tech Week here at the Abbey, and as a taster in advance of the opening of Bernard Shaw's You Never Can Tell, I had a look in the old Talks archives and selected a holy trinity of Shavian scholars to whet your appetite for the fourth Shaw on the main stage in recent years. From 2011, we have director Annabel Common talking with Professor Brian Singleton about Pygmalion, the complexities of the characters, and the accepted brutality of the time. Next, recorded in 2013, is theatre critic Emer O'Kelly, commending Shaw's clarity, his kindness, and his eternal relevance. And to complete this Shavian triumvirate, we have director Roshi McBrin and Dr Audrey McNamara discussing last year's Heartbreak House, full of strong women, middle-class socialism, and notions of equality. Enjoy this podcast. Okay. Wow, so many people. Um, Annabelle said before we started that uh, she was very nervous, and I don't know whether it was so many people in the room or it's because I used to teach Annabelle uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, she was a student at Trinity. Um, as Lisa said, it is the hottest ticket in town, and so first of all, congratulations, Annabelle, on a fantastic hit show Thank you. for the Abbey. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So um, I just want to ask you, first of all, what attracted you uh, to Pygmalion? What was it um, that got you going? Um, the reality is that uh, Fiek asked me to uh, take a look at the play because um, he said it's a play that he loved and uh, was interested in doing for quite a while. And I've always uh, directed predominantly contemporary British playwrights. Mm. Um, so this was kind of very left field suggestion and I was like oh um, so I read it and um, and then I read it mm-hmm. and I, I read it about three times and it took me about th- three times to read it t- for me to feel I was beginning to understand the play and how what what would you know what drew me to the play so initially i i, I liked mm. the play and i always loved my fair lady actually uh, but um i hadn't seen that in a long time and mm. i pygmalion was done in school but mm. I, I it wasn't initially a, a draw for me and it was only as i began to understand the play a little bit better and and also the relationship between um i, I found higgins a fascinating character actually mm-hmm. um and i suppose there's a debate whether the play's about higgins or whether it's about eliza or, or maybe both, but I found the complexities of his character fascinating, uh, and I thought. So was he a mad scientist, or I, 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 suffering from Asperger's syndrome? Uh, <laughs> you see, I, I think um, I, I think he's a product of his time, and he, I think he's an interesting character because I think he doesn't get fulfilment from society around him. I uh-huh. actually think he's a bit of an illust, and oh, um, and that he. Uh, I think he is emotionally has detached himself from society as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so when I began to, I think, uh, understand the psychology of the characters, and not just Higgins, but the characters, mm-hmm. and, and how they're rooted in, in the periods that is set in, mm-hmm. and the social and political period they're set in, that began to fascinate me. Because and the colonial period as well. Oh, absolutely. Know, Colonel Pickering coming back from India, yeah. this idea of subjecting people to the gaze of the, uh, the orientalist gaze, studying it, people. Yeah, no, uh, it, it, it's mm-hmm. a, I suppose, in a way, um, what, what, what's uh, interesting about it as well is because of the time of huge change, mm-hmm. you have the Industrial Age, 
age and, and in a way Doolittle is, is a kind of a product of a self-made man, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then also it was in the time of change with the suffragette movement. Um, it was also kind of the end, the beginning of the end of the empire mm-hmm. uh, as well, right, as, yeah. as you know mm-hmm. it. So things were in huge turmoil. And I think it's fascinating because Eliza then beca- is an extraordinary character who talks about um, wants financial independence, but by the end, end of the play, she's looking at an independence that is quite unique, mm-hmm. really, for that time. Mm-hmm. And it's also just prior. So the play was written in 1912, but we set it from 1913 to 14, so it's just on the cusp of going into World War I. Mm-hmm. So costume-wise, we thought her final outfit is her liberty outfit, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And we kind of just thought um, that sense of just preempting the role that women were going to play um, uh-huh. after World War I, too. So mm-hmm. I, I suppose... Yeah, and what about the question of uh, social mobility? Because you know the class system in Britain is well known yeah. uh, for being rigid and, and not being for not being able to move between the, yeah. the different classes. Was you know is that an issue for us here in Ireland? Uh, to the same, well, certainly not to the same extent. Um, I, I, I don't think mm. they are to the same extent. Mm. No. But um, I do think, um, I even think on the back of what Ireland has gone through at the moment, in ter- uh, what we have gone through in the last few years in terms of excessive amount of um, the money that was in the country and is not there anymore, mm-hmm. and how that transformation of people's lives um, uh, happened. And now we're looking back and reflecting on the, what type of new person that has made us. And I mm-hmm. think you see that in the Doolittle character and in, um, and in many of the characters who are in the Ainsford Hill characters. Actually, there are people of a certain class, but now they've lost or they have no money. Mm-hmm. And how they deal with actually the reality of being of the upper classes, but not having the money to fulfill that role. And so like, money is obviously at the core of the play mm-hmm. as well. So um, we're all Eliza's then? I, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, why do you think this is the first ever Abbey Theatre production of Pygmalion? Have you any ideas where that might be? I don't know. Right, I, 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 I have no idea because they've done uh, Shaw before. Mm. Um, it, no, I have no idea why it's been this long for them to. And I suppose Fiek would be the man to answer that. But I don't know. I don't or, know. Well, pre- his predecessors. Pre- his predecessors, because yeah, yeah. he's one. I have no idea. I suppose Shaw sometimes is because his plays are set in England. Mm. Um, most of his plays are all set in England. He's often seen as a, an English playwright, right, you know, yeah. even though mm-hmm. he's an Irish playwright. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, well. Well, that's something we need to ask Fiek about. Yeah. Okay, um, as I said, the play deals with uh, issues of class, um, but also issues of gender yeah. and, and the constru- uh, construction of, uh, uh, of an individual. Actually, uh, some of you may remember um, Annabelle's production of uh, A Number by Carol Churchill in the Peacock Theatre. I don't know what year that was. What, four, three, four, three, years, four years ago? Yeah. I and mean, that also dealt with uh, the question of nature versus nurture. Yeah. Can you create someone? Can, are you born to be uh, uh, into a class? Are you born to be someone? Or can you be trained and educated into it? Yeah. I saw similar resonances in, in, yeah, in, in no, this play as well. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. because I suppose you, Eliza is, is quite a unique character because I don't think Shaw's saying that uh, everyone who makes a living on the you know streets selling flowers mm. has that um, ambition or um, I suppose Shaw uses the word soul and I think um, a Higgins falls in love um, with Eliza's soul mm-hmm. um, and I think what Shaw means about soul is something um, that she is hungry to learn 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I I think what Shaw writes about is a lot of the people who are in the uh, the upper classes um, are soulless in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they're 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 they're. Uh, you know, just, he doesn't. Higgins gets no satisfaction out of them. They're uh, people who enjoy eating and drinking and not much else, basically. And mm-hmm. and he feels that the, the, the small things that they should know, like their own etiquette, they don't even know that. Mm-hmm. But Eliza ha- has quite a unique soul, and she's she's um, absolutely starved of it on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in terms of art and literature and music and culture, and um, and, and and yet she has an innate um, understanding of them, and so she picks up. She ha- she has a musical instrument that we don't know what, what it is mm-hmm. that she takes with her, but um, they say, Higgins says that she has a better ear than he ever had, mm-hmm. and he's kind of the expert in his field. So um, I think she's and her father as well. Like when you listen to Doolittle's arguments, he's he's fantastic. He speaks like a barrister, mm-hmm. um, and so in a way they are they're. I don't know whether that is something you're born with, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It seems to be what he's suggesting, that not everyone has... I I, I don't know the answer to that, but Mm -hmm. uh, um, it seems something that she she is an extraordinary character herself and we're introduced to her without having an understanding of where she might have picked that up. You you seem to have a lot of sympathy for her, for Eliza, but, but she enters the experiment willingly. She does, yeah. Um, um, I guess Eliza has very strong morals, um, mm-hmm. and I think they're morals that are in reaction to her her father's, as she would consider them, a lack of morals, basically. <laughs> and um, so she says she doesn't drink, just a sense of religion um, and a sense of character, and she's fighting for her character in Act One all the time, mm-hmm. what her character is, um, and she, it, she feels is under threat in Act One. But... Um, Sorry, just remind me of what you were saying there. Just um, you know, she enters the experiment yeah. uh, to oh, become willing. a different person, a different yeah. class, very th- willingly. Yeah, and I think though she thinks by by bettering herself mm-hmm. that her I think that her class will match her morals, and, okay. I, and, mm-hmm. and so she does. She's quite brutally treated, and she accepts it. But I think what she learns by the end is that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. That just because you have a certain way of speaking and dressing doesn't necessarily mean you have morals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she learns that uh, as well as part of her journey. And but c- she, she mm-hmm. sets out, which is important. She sets out to become a, a lady in a flower shop, not mm-hmm. to become a judgess, right. yes. um, which is a difference. Because um, yeah. a lady in a flower shop has financial independence, and mm-hmm. um, uh, but she accepts, she accepts because she doesn't understand what the consequences mm-hmm. will be of being trained to. Well, she economic independence, but she's also maybe not social independence. Mm-hmm. She marries, she goes off to marry Freddie. Well, well we think she might. In the version, there are right, two yeah, versions yeah. of the play, and in the version. Uh, I decided to do... I did a mixture of the two versions, yeah. and there's mm-hmm. 15 years apart. But I stuck to the original text of the first version, where, um, in a way, the notion of her marrying Freddie, I think, is her just looking for a, a way of... Um, uh, a way out, basically. Mm-hmm. If she's not going to just live with Higgins and Pickering, where is she? I can marry Freddie. But mm-hmm. um, that thought doesn't sustain itself through to the end. Mm-hmm. While in the second version, the notion that she marries Freddie becomes much more mm-hmm. concrete. Mm-hmm. So... I, I don't see necessarily, even though Shaw writes about it, I don't necessarily see in this version that Freddie is necessarily where she ends up. 
Mm-hmm. But we also took smaller scenes then that are in the second um, version of the play, and I've taken just a few of them and put them in. Yeah, well, let's but, let's talk about those for okay. a little bit because they're, they're very significant, I think. Yeah. Um, one of which is the bathing scene where she's yeah. she strips and uh, and bathed, and uh, her whole life is washed off her. Mm. Um, why did you choose to put that in? Um, I chose to put in, there are four extra mm. scenes in the second version. There's the, the, the bathroom scene, the phonetic scene, mm. the ballroom scene, and the scene with Freddie. Um, and I chose to put in the bathroom scene and the phonetic scene and just a couple of lines of the ballroom scene. Um, the, I, I thought it... What I was interested in is the inherent violence within the play. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, going back to that notion of empire and how... The, Certain the upper classes justify their violence or their violence is behind doors while with Doolittle we see his violence more outwardly mm-hmm. um, and it's seen uh, you know kind of and also that sense of the only way to treat the working class is to treat them violently because that's all they understand mm-hmm. um, and so Higgins uses very brutal language because he thinks that's the way she understands mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, I also thought it upped the stakes within the play as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we go from the bathroom scene and then we look at Pickering, uh, it goes straight into the scene with Pickering and Higgins and, and Pickering saying, you know, can I trust you with this woman? Are you a man of good intentions? That we, we understand, um, I suppose, there's a certain sense of... Uh, uh, brutality that is accepted mm-hmm. and it's, it's on what level and Eliza accepts it too in order to achieve her means and also in the phonetic scene as well I think she's, she's treated quite brutally and yet she mm-hmm. chooses to go through it because she thinks the, the, the means will justify the end basically. Well, one reviewer compared it to boot camp of yeah. a reality TV show <laughs> and another re- uh, reviewer referred to the bathing, bathroom scene as a scene of torture, like of waterboarding. Yeah. Um, because well, <laughs> certainly the critics seem to think that you know, it's, it was really brutal. I mean, I, I, th- I felt so as well. Which, well, I think what's interesting which is, I think is really good. Mrs. Mm. Pierce um, and the actress playing Mrs. Pierce, Fiona Bell, is mm. actually from Scotland, but um, I thought she was absolutely right. She decided that um, the part should be played with an English accent. Um, so we started the first few weeks of rehearsals were done with a Scottish accent. But mm. in a way, she became a caricature then. Um, and so we... We agreed then that actually to put her in with an English accent means we can demarcate the the differences of class. Mm -hmm. And so she's the housekeeper um, called Mrs. Pierce. And here is this presumptuous person from the streets um, skipping, basically, Mm -hmm. rank and surpassing her. And I think there's that fighting in Act 2 between Mrs. Pierce and Eliza Mm -hmm. about her right to do it, and mm-hmm. it's a bit of a class struggle going mm-hmm. on there between the varia- variants of working, the working class. classes. Yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm. um, and so I think she is. Um, she, um, Mrs. Pierce is kind of going, "Well, if this is what you want, this is how you're going to be treated. Mm-hmm. You brought this mm-hmm. upon yourself." Mm-hmm. So I think there is a violence there because there's a bit of a class struggle going between mm-hmm. the working classes. And that so it's not just middle class versus working classes. No, there's working classes versus. Working and, and also within the middle classes themselves is the Ainsford, whatever you call them. Ainsford, yes, uh, yes, and uh, and then the Higgins family slightly above it? Or did they construct themselves as slightly above it? I, you see, I also thought the Ainsford yeah. Hills were... Mm. Um, no, I also I saw also the Higgins mm. is as a professional class. Right. But okay. he would actually have to work, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I put him in the category of doctors and scientists right, and, yeah, and yeah. Um, um, barristers and so forth. So, I, I, you know, he has to work still to make a living. And he says he teaches American women um, basically how to speak and... Um, 
properly or people, you know, wives of industrialists who mm. find themselves um, moving up the social ladder and he's mm-hmm. teaching them. But you get the sense he needs that to, to make a living. Pickering now has inherent wealth uh-huh. and is extremely wealthy. Mm. Um, but um, So the Ainsworth Hills, no, I, I mm. saw them, they had been born probably into the upper classes, mm-hmm. but haven't got the money the now, money. Yeah. have mm-hmm. lost their money. And Freddie is certainly not going to make any money. Freddie, mm-hmm. the, the head of the household now, now mm-hmm. is inept. Basically. So in a way, it's an experiment for all of them because um, you know none of them are of, of really of the upper classes anymore. No, uh, the, the, the creation of a duchess. Yeah. yeah, but the creation of a duchess yes. is something that. Um, none of them is. None of them is at that level. Not quite. Yeah. I don't mm. see them quite at that level. But mm. um, by by Higgins being so renowned, he mm-hmm. has earned his place within that right. world. Like yeah. I think he is well off. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, is it? It's called a romantic comedy. Do you think so? Oh, I also thought it was just called a romance. Mm. Not a romantic comedy. I've seen well, various descriptions of it. Ah, but, okay. Uh, mm. And the, the one I had, a, a romance, and, and I think Shaw's talking about the romance of someone who feels they have the idea, they have the idea mm. that they can um, become something else as opposed to a right, romance yeah. between mm-hmm. Eliza and Higgins. Mm-hmm. Um, so a comedy, I think it's funny, mm-hmm. but I think, it's, I, I think it's quite dark as well. Mm. So... Um, and that's why you put in those extra scenes <laughs> yeah, from the second draft. Yeah, okay. exactly. um, so let's move on to... Uh, uh, let's talk about the production, actually. Sure. Um, you know, the, obviously, you know, when you've, one of the first discussions you might have had would be with the designer, yeah. uh, Paula Mahoney. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about those discussions sure. and how you created those? Because you know, the, the play is full of different locations. It's almost very filmic. Yeah. Uh, it moves about a lot. Um, yeah. So what what were the first conversations you had? Um, I've worked with Paul Lamahney mm. a, a lot. Mm. So I'd say six, seven, eight times I've worked with Paul. Um, and we, we, I think we begin to understand each other's language. Um, so the, the first thing we did is when we met up, um, I remember him saying, I don't quite know where to start with this. And we were quite used to doing very minimalist uh, sets for contemporary plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And it's easy to feel the weight of a classic play on your shoulders. And in a way, I think the first thing then, we decided to treat it like a production that we normally do in mm-hmm. a contemporary way, even though it's set in period, we set it within the period. Um, to, so we looked at, the first thing that we did is we just read through the play and we, or we looked through the play and we looked at what Shaw wrote about the sets mm-hmm. and what he, what he said. And what we noticed was in Act One, um, it's set in Covent Garden, and we wondered why it was it set in Covent Garden, and what was it about St Paul's? Uh, and we looked at pictures, and we suddenly went, "Oh, St Paul's is not only is it under God's roof, but the idea of empire as well in, mm-hmm. in the architecture of the colonnade." So we thought it'd be interesting. What happens if you actually just put two columns on stage that are of the real size of St Paul's? Mm-hmm. Um, would you get that sense of height and empire? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in Act 1 you see all the different classes as they're designated under empire, really, in Act mm-hmm. 1. Mm-hmm. Um, and then has, how he describes Act 2 um, was lofty ceilings, and that's um, the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he calls it a laboratory as well. Um, so we looked at height, first mm-hmm. of all. And then as you get to Mrs Higgins, he said it's a more contemporary or a more modern apartment for the times and lower ceilings. So we kind of thought Mrs Higgins is getting closer to emotion and nature. So height suddenly had a lot to do with this. That mm-hmm. was our first um, look, uh, first thing we looked at. Then we looked at endless images of laboratories mm-hmm. um, and, um, 
and and then we went from the laboratory just looking at images of um, we're quite interested in the sense of really bringing that world into his living room. Mm-hmm. And so it would become quite sterile and a place of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the idea of phonetics is someone who breaks down, who removes emotion from speech and breaks language down and compartmentalises. Mm-hmm. So there was a few things going on there. So we looked up... Um, First of all, we, we, I looked up actually Nazi files, so was like this idea of how you break people down, and I found an image of that. Mm-hmm. And not that I was saying he's Nazi or anything like that, but it was an image actually used and is in the set now, is that idea of compartmentalising people. Mm-hmm. So that was quite a strong idea. Um, I then had a trip to Glasgow, um, on this IETM tour, this kind of theatre tour, mm-hmm. and um, I was inside the Macintosh building, oh, yes, and yes. The, just looking at the sense of how um, gothic uh, the architecture was, and how there was a renaissance of that in that period, um, and uh, we started then looking to Im- images of Dr. Frankenstein uh, mm-hmm. as well, <laughs> and just that sense of creating, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. creating his monster or his. Um, uh, uh, Eliza Galatia, mm-hmm. is it? Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so we kind of use those images um, and the idea of height and, the, and I suppose that gothic image, and also mm-hmm. looking to looking back to kind of um, Greek philosophers as well, right. and mm-hmm. just that idea of um, those links with the past of of, of Greece and, and, and Rome. And mm-hmm. um, so, we, so Higgins' world really. Uh, kind of um, came from those references, really. Right. Um, yeah. And then, go ahead. No, no. no mm. And then Mrs. Higgins, um, Shaw describes as, uh, it's very funny, the detail he goes into, that obviously she was influenced by William Morris, but um, we decided that her, he describes that she, there's a painting of her on the wall that was when in her youth and she was dressing against the fashion. Now, also, we don't have a painting on the wall because um, we don't really have any walls within the set mm-hmm. except for the back wall. But we, we took that as someone who was a socialist but had not found an outlet and had kind of um, become a faded socialist in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we thought it would be interesting if, if the William Morris was then faded back Mm-hmm. So someone who uh, had lost their stringency or became mm-hmm. less strident, basically, mm-hmm. um, as the years went on and as, uh, yeah, I suppose, uh, out of her youth, basically. So those are some of the ideas. One of the most striking images for me was uh, the, the, the laboratory. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, the height was uh, yeah. quite extraordinary. But it was uh, towards, uh, you know, when uh, Eliza's experiment was finished and the box file was put back with all the other box files and you think of that extraordinary collection of how many people's lives has he destroyed uh, uh, towards the end and that was was terrifying actually. It's funny because in Act 3 which is quite a funny scene Uh um, but the Act 3 ends then with Mrs Higgins and and Pickering and Higgins and and they're both, even Pickering has kind of lost his sense of focus and they're both Mm. saying absolutely obsessed by her we take photographs of her, we fire or compartmentalise, we look at her speech and her tongue and, mm-hmm. and you're going, she's completely broken down into um, uh, you know, she, her, every aspect of her has been broken down and they don't see a person at all anymore mm-hmm. um, and actually the language show, um, has Higgins uses that she's a creature an animal, he doesn't, he hasn't considered her as a human being mm-hmm. and yet mm-hmm. at the same time he's completely drawn to her but um, yeah, 
So. And move on just to stay in scenography, uh, yeah. costumes. Yeah. Uh, you said you, you chose to, uh, to stage it in, not in 1912, but 1913-14. <laughs> I mean, for some of us looking back, you know, 100 years ago, <laughs> what, you know, what's the difference? Yeah. Uh, but of course, in, in those times, going to the theatre, um, you know, the audience would recognise the cut of a dress, they'd recognise yeah. the boots, they'd recognise the shoes instantly, and it'd be an, a, instant, uh, instantly able to tell who was who. Yeah, uh, just by the clothes, just by the look. Yeah. Actually, P- Peter O'Brien, who's mm. the costume designer, he um, he suddenly said, "Oh, fantastic!" Because by 1914, the skirts began to lift, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and so that was great. So Eliza, <laughs> in the final scene, has a slightly like relatively shorter dress right. than she would, and a slightly freer dress than the constraints mm-hmm. of being dressed by the men, because mm-hmm. she dresses herself in the final scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought, and everything else that she's worn. Um, uh, has been dressed by Higgins and Pickering, mm-hmm. basically. But um, sound was also a huge mm-hmm. thing in the play, actually. And, and um, I, more and more I'm drawn to sound. And, and Philip Stewart has done an incredible job on the sound. Mm-hmm. And, um, and originally we were going to choose pieces of Wagner and things like that. But then again we said, no, let's do this as we normally work. I all, mm-hmm. I've worked endlessly with Philip Stewart mm-hmm. 10, 11 times um, and we decided what would be interesting is um, introducing the idea of um, vowel sounds right. to, mm-hmm. the, to the music um, the, the first act ends with well I'm dashed um, and I quite like the sound of the the word dashed just seems so um, the epitome of English upper class right, word sure. mm-hmm. and he's always using the vowel sounds of that and how that would um, uh, those type of sounds and voices and how we'd use that in the music as well um, mm-hmm. and then giving a, a dialogue between violin and wind instruments which was Eliza and Higgins mm-hmm. as right. well um, going on in this music I think with the play about phonetics the sound is absolutely vital it is actually it? Yeah. Um, so yeah sound uh-huh. became an enormous part sure. of the and that's why we underscored some of those mm-hmm. smaller scenes too so in a way we didn't stop for those scenes but we just carry on through into mm-hmm. the main scene so. okay can I ask you about casting how did you approach casting the play um, did you start with Eliza and then build around her, or what were you? Actually, work? started with Higgins. All right. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. Higgins was the first person to start with, um, mm-hmm. and I, I was very lucky in casting. I got everybody who I hoped to get. Mm-hmm. To me, with what was really important was that we would get uh, actors who bring a huge amount of rigor to the stage mm-hmm. um, and complexity, and an inherent kind of violence isn't quite. But but when you see people down on their luck that they have an inherent bite to their acting. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I suppose I didn't, I really wanted some that you could see that were quite grounded mm-hmm. um, and complex um, complex actors. So uh, I feel terribly lucky in the cast. The cast is fantastic. Um, so that was it. So I started mm-hmm. um, with Higgins and then we started building around him actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we kind of went from there, Higgins okay. and, and then Eliza and, um, and Pickering and Doolittle, those characters. So when you were uh, casting Eliza, um, how, you know, what were you looking for? It's a hugely tricky mm. part. Um, Eliza is, is massive in some ways because you're asking a, an Irish woman to play not only a Cockney girl but then who will, you will believe the transformation mm-hmm. um, when she passes as a duchess. So Charlie Murphy had an enormous task. And it was finding someone that you could believe. To me it was really important that you really believe that um, Eliza and Doolittle came from the streets. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a gesture towards... Um, 
the world of the streets and the harder life of the working class, but that you really felt they came from that world. Um, so as someone who had that rigour, um, had that fight within mm-hmm. them, and we also thought Eliza had to have a huge amount of fight for her to do what she did, like for her to even walk into Higgins's. Uh, room. It's an mm-hmm. enormous thing for her to do. Um, and then to put so much money and she earns so little to put so much of her money into into wanting lessons. You're going, this woman is feisty. So we needed that. Um, and someone who could bring that energy through to uh, an Eliza who has then been taught um, how to speak and mix with the upper classes basically. Yeah. Um, I just want to move on in the next few minutes to more general questions sure. uh, about you as a director. And uh, could you tell us about your process generally as a director? What attracts you to the theatre? What, what type of theatre are you interested in? And yeah. how do you work? Um, Three big questions. Okay. Right. So uh, the type of mm. plays I'm interested mm. in, uh, plays, uh, I, I love language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love writers who use uh, all the complexities of language to explore, uh, I suppose, emotional ideas and political ideas. So um, I'm also really drawn to plays that have um, men and women of the heart, emotional struggles, basically, between them. That's always interesting. Um, uh, so um, Shaw, is, his ideas are extremely complex, and to me that's always a challenge. So I mm-hmm. like a play that gives me an enormous challenge, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Shaw is the quintessence of that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So, um, and in terms of how I work, um, I would start working on a play prior to rehearsals, first of all, months mm-hmm. in advance, and reading and reading and reading the play, and writing about each character, looking at the type of language he uses for each character, similar imagery for each character, and 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 really um, explore all as much as I can to the political and social mm-hmm. ideas that are, are, are mentioned in the play. And then, um, and, and I'd actually test my ideas out on boring people. So Andrea Ainsworth was a very, um, <laughs> uh, a very patient ear. She's the, the, the voice coach and she also helped us with the phonetics. Um, and I would just talk ad nauseum to, uh, to her about, what do you think of this idea? And do you think this is going on here? And just talk. Uh-huh. But then once I got into rehearsals, um, the first we had five and a half weeks rehearsal, which I think really needed for this mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. Um, um, to, in order to get to all the, the depth of the play. And I would work around the table for the first week. Mm-hmm. So we watched um, videos on Empire, Simon Shama video, mm. and we watched two episodes of, of that. Um, Andrew came in to talk about phonetics, and we went through the play bit by bit, mm-hmm. talking about the ideas within the play. Um, and so I suppose I would do that to get a sense. Of, I suppose there's so many ways you could direct Pygmalion, and I wanted everyone to feel by the end of the week to have a sense of the type of production they were going to be in. Because mm. I suppose the actress didn't know what type of production I was, sure. I was mm-hmm. looking at doing. And it could have been... We could have played it as a comedy, basically. Mm. And even though it's very funny, we didn't actually uh, end up working it that way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. f- for laughs. Um, but um, So I think by the end of the week, everyone had a sense of how we were hoping to root the play mm-hmm. and the type of production. And then I just get it up on its feet. Um, and um, I was very lucky with all the actors because they were all actors who are constantly inquiring about language too. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was one of those plays we did a lot of stopping actually. And sometimes you're kind of going, oh, let's just get on with it. But all of us ended up having to stop because... Mm-hmm. because it, 
it, you're literally moving on a few lines. And you're going, but what does he actually mean by this line? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you really have to be on top of Shaw's thoughts all, right. all the time. Um, and what became very important as well is that you can't think between the lines. You have to think on, on the lines. Mm-hmm. And Shaw doesn't allow you to think between the lines. So... Um, um, so there's no sense of reflection within the play, but you use language to to dis- discover your argument. But you right. have to be. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? You have to mm-hmm. be kind of on your argument, as opposed to thinking about what you're going to say. Um, so in a way, they use language to explore ideas constantly. So it's mm-hmm. constantly an active thing. Right. Um, and so I suppose that's how it works. I mean, you seem to be very passionate about Shaw. Uh, yeah. It's the first time you've directed a Shaw yeah. play. Um, would you? Is there another Shaw play that you'd like to direct? Um, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't read all of Shaw, but he's written mm. so much. But um, I, I'm going to be... Um, I love St. Joan, um, mm-hmm. but I'm also looking at Major Barbara at the moment, mm-hmm. just having a read of that, and that's fascinating, terribly complex too. Um, but I think I'd need to read it a lot more before <laughs> I could expand on it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any particular uh, challenges of directing on the Abbey stage for you? Did you find anything I've been told for years mm. by so many people saying, oh, make sure that the action doesn't go mm. too far upstage and mm. just because voice is getting lost and things like that. So I went to see um, a couple of plays. Like, I, I, I go anyway, but, but I went again to mm. see a few plays that had been on just prior to um, me going into rehearsals to look at where the best positions on the stage right. were. Okay. Um, and that sounds very pragmatic, but just, um, just you realise in certain places just aren't good mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm stage and the rehearsal room is can fit practically the whole stage in but it doesn't give you any stand back yeah, a yeah. perspective mm-hmm. and so you're on top of it and and I did think when we got into tech I was going Christ it feels quite different you know mm-hmm. what I mean um, mm-hmm. but so that was I actually just looking at what other people did on the stage okay. um, mm-hmm. and looking at other productions and seeing how they use the space mm-hmm. um, and so that, that was it because um, the, 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 it's so wide and in the rehearsal room, you, you, you can't get a sense of that because it's over there. So you mm-hmm. can't step, step back from it. So you're constantly, I remember Fiek saying, imagine you're in the theatre now, try and step back, step mm-hmm. back all the time. But, um, um, so that, I suppose it's difficult if you literally can't do it's, it. It's very <laughs> difficult. And yeah. I was going, yes, I, yeah. I, you're right, but I can't. Hello, everyone, and um, it's very nice to be here, and it is particularly nice to be here to talk about one of my gods, George Bernard Shaw, Um, although I do have to admit that having a conversation almost a year ago with Theoc Mokanil, we were babbling on, and he was talking about putting on Major Barbara, and he said to me, um, you know, because I was getting so excited, and he said, you know an awful lot about him. I said, he's my God. And he said, oh, great, will you give the show a lecture? And I thought, crikey, what have you walked yourself into now? <laughs> so I hope I won't bore you, and I hope I can do him justice. George Bernard Shaw, he had a passion for clarity from the day he began as a young critic with the Pall Mall Gazette and the Saturday Review in the 1880s. It was a clarity which had been championed two and a half thousand years earlier by no less a man than Confucius who wrote, if language is not correct, then what is said is not what is meant. If what is said is not what is meant, then what must be done remains undone. If this remains undone, morals and art will deteriorate. 
If justice goes astray, the people will stand about in helpless confusion. Hence, there must be no arbitrariness in what is said. This matters above everything. That, interestingly enough, is more or less what Adolphus Cousins says in the first act of Major Barbara. And it sums up Shaw's entire writing career with its passion for clarity of political approach and his championing of art as the essential core of human progress. But truth in criticism is an odd quality. I read your critique, but what did you really think? Is a common question for the critic, who pays writers and artists the compliment of taking them seriously. And I am sure there were people who disbelieved Shaw or claimed to misunderstand him when he wrote with pellucid clarity, as for instance of Henry Irving, known for truncating Shakespeare's work to suit his own devices. In a true republic of art, Sir Henry Irving would ere this have expiated his acting versions on the scaffold. He does not merely cut plays, he disembowels them. A man who would do that would cut the coda out of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or shorten one of Velazquez's Phillips into a Kit Kat to make it fit over his drawing room mantelpiece. That one appeals actually particularly to me in an era and a country where we have self-styled art lovers who seem to get away with looking for art to be nice and undemanding. For such people who usually go to the theatre for the frocks, thought-provoking reality is unnecessary and offensive in contemporary art. And when art in any of its forms becomes a commodity with which the bourgeoisie, many of them Philistines, use for the sole reason of buying social status, we have need of the plain speaking of George Bernard Shaw to cut us down to size. And he did it all with humor, frequently ironic, because it was only pretension and hypocrisy that he found unforgivable. Unfortunately for Ireland, one of our abiding sins was hypocrisy. But Shaw always continued to hope that we might grow out of it as he had hoped we would raise our heads in a liberal international community free of Catholic church domination once we achieved independence. Nobody could deny he was a crank. But again, it was in the best possible way. He preached endlessly in everything from his letters to his journalism and indeed his plays, which made and still makes people suspicious of the plays and avoid his prose writings. But just think about it, in one definition a crank is brisk, lively, and whimsical. What people frequently miss or choose to ignore is Shaw's immense kindness. He was endlessly helpful when he felt people needed or deserved help, and in the case of Lady Gregory, was also endlessly patient with her constant badgering and imperious assumption that he'd nothing better to do than be her guiding life and theatrical mentor. And as far as I'm concerned in this defense of his humor, patience, and kindness, one of my own more whimsical arguments in his favor is the fact that he cheated. He cheated while playing Hunt the Thimble with Lady Gregory's granddaughters, visibly and mischievously, so that the little girls could catch him out and make him go all hangdog. There's something irresistibly charming about that, and it sure as heck isn't cranky. It was easy to admire or even revere the great writer who was our first Nobel laureate, the man of principle whose notion of socialism was a society led by an intellectual elite and who believed passionately that education should be based on questions rather than answers. And then you found that childless, he hadn't only frequently spent time amusing two little girls, he'd also found the surest far way to enchant them, be naughty. This wasn't George Bernard Shaw of popular imagination. It was certainly not George Bernard Shaw of Man and Superman and Heartbreak House, but of course it was. 
Humanity lies at the heart of Walshaw's work. His passion may stem from intellectual impatience that the human race is selling itself short, rather than what he saw as the more ephemeral intensity of desire. But he wants the best for us. He wanted the best for the future, a future in which he never lost hope. And when somebody has hope, they're joyous. They may criticize, but they do not condemn. Shaw condemned very little, and if he preached, he did it not to impose, but to convert to a freer way of thinking. But he certainly heaved a lot of disappointed sighs when he looked at the world at large, and in particular, when he looked at what Ireland had done with her freedom. But it all sprang from seeing things clearly. He defined his Irishness not through either empire loyalism or the misty-eyed, rose-tinted glasses of emergent nationalism, but as something that simply made him a foreigner in any other country, as he replied in old age to a question as to how far his mental makeup had been influenced by being Irish. In the preface to John Bull's Other Island, he writes, when I say I'm an Irishman, I mean that I was born in Ireland and that my native language is the English of Swift and not the unspeakable jargon of the mid-19th century London newspapers. My extraction is the extraction of most Englishmen. That is, I have no trace in me of the commercially imported North Spanish strain which passes for Aboriginal Irish. I am a genuine, typical Irishman of the Danish, Norman, Cromwellian, and of course, Scottish invasions. I am violently and arrogantly Protestant by family tradition, but let no English government therefore count on my allegiance. I am English enough to be an inveterate Republican and home ruler. Accused at the time of being deliberately and mischievously provocative, that argument presages something that I've always believed, that in many ways the United Kingdom, and especially England, is effectively more a republic than Ireland is, or rather at the time GBS wrote John Bull's Other Island, would become. Its parliament is independent of both crown and church, whereas the Irish Free State, and later the Republic, dedicated itself to Rome and to God, therefore annulling the Republican core value of the people being supreme. And that, I have found, is as unpopular a view to have in 2013 as it was when Shaw expressed it in 1907. But with such a defiant definition of Irishness, which even at the time he wrote it, went against what was acceptable in an Ireland coming increasingly under the influence of Gaelic League romanticism, it's perhaps not surprising that Shaw was suspect by his fellow countrymen. Rather the way today, we accept Northern Ireland Protestants into our midst, but only provided they apologize for their heritage and imply that they're ashamed of it. To this day, I believe that academic criticism of Shaw, and I'm talking about criticism from either Irish or Irish-American sources, is influenced by a subliminally nationalist approach to his opinions. That interpretation of his views on Ireland concludes that he felt bitter and antagonistic towards his own country. I believe that if what I can best call an internationalist, non-judgmental stance is taken, the writings can be seen as fair, clear, and essentially truthful. Candidness and self-knowledge are not qualities with which most Irish people are particularly endowed, given our propensity for self-justification and self-pity, and the mindless immaturity, which nearly three quarters of a century after Shaw's death, still makes us blame somebody else for all our national ills. It wasn't me, mum, we whine. It was baby brother, big brother, big government, big oppressor. In other words, today, it's the ECB and the IMF. In Shaw's younger days, it was Britain. 
We still haven't faced up to ourselves as Shaw believed we would once we had our independence. The skirts of our former oppressors are still the shield behind which we hide by blaming them ultimately for our rejection of the free thinking dignity which Shaw longed for us to embrace. Prophetically, he wrote that there is no Irish race any more than there is an English race or a Yorkshire race. There is an Irish climate which will stamp an immigrant more deeply and durably in two years, apparently, than the English climate will in 200. It is reinforced by an artificial economic climate which does some of the work attributed to the natural geographic one. But the geographic climate is eternal and irresistible, making a mankind and a womankind that Kent, Middlesex, and East Anglia cannot produce and do not want to imitate. It's breathtaking to think that Shaw wrote that in 1907, before the First World War seemed even imminent. And it remains blindingly obvious in its truth after two destructive world wars, which altered the map of Europe as well as its political thinking. And almost exactly 50 years before the signing of the Treaty of Rome, which set up the then European Economic Community as the bulwark against future European war. The treaty carried within it, the signatories hoped, the seeds of European political union. And it's hard not to believe that Shaw wouldn't have been an enthusiastic supporter of such a union, given his antipathy to all forms of nationalism. Nationalism stands between Ireland and the light of the world, he writes succinctly, again in the preface to John Bull's Other Island. He was writing in defense of home rule for Ireland and believed that with what now seems like touching naivete, that nationalism would fade from the Irish consciousness once home rule was achieved. And as we know, neither its achievement nor the achievement of what we trumpet as the Republic has made us abandon its narrow waterways. Writing in the New Statesman as early as 1916, he equated nationalism with conceit, ignorance, insular contempt for foreigners, and bad manners masquerading as patriotism. Given that he was also on record, as I've said, as believing in home rule for Ireland, it follows that he hoped his country would transcend such nationalism to become a true republic. We can only guess his reaction to today's cynical equating of the two. Admittedly, his championing of internationalism and socialism did blind him to the horrors of Stalinism in the 20s and 30s. But in refusing to condemn its barbarism, he was operating within a mindset of the rise of fascism. He was still a believer in the possibility of a benign move towards international socialism. But the Second World War and those who caused it effectively killed that off, following on its having been mortally wounded by the victory of Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Paradoxically, Shaw toyed with the idea of dictatorship as a solution when he wrote Beyond Bullies in 1948. Democracy, he suggested, had given us populations who vote for Hitlers, who call on them to exterminate Jews, for Mussolinis, who rally them to nationalist dreams of glory and empire in which all foreigners are enemies. It's unarguable. Indeed, it had been argued as far back as Plato's Republic as a condemnation of the common people's inability to choose wisely when swayed by a power-seeking demagogue. And Shaw had even flirted with the notion of eugenics as far back as 1910 in the Eugenics Education Society. And he still believed that natural attraction rather than wealth or social class should motivate marriage. That, roughly speaking, had been the theme of his early novels. And he saw it as the essence of eugenics. And he also approached the notion of class with a degree of humor. 
neither willing himself into the higher echelons of the bourgeoisie, despite the existence of a baronetcy in the family, or consciously casting himself into the class of jobbing journalist. In the preface to his first novel, Immaturity, which was written in 1879, but not published until 1930, the preface was written shortly before the book's publication, he points out that his father, after essaying a clerkship or two, at last had his position recognized by a post in the forecourts, an office so undeniably superfluous that it actually got demolished before I was born. And my father naturally demanded a pension for the outrage. Having got it, he promptly sold it and set up in business as a merchant dealing wholesale, the family dignity made retail business impossible, in flour and its cereal concomitants. Such mischievous pretension pricking stands in marked contrast to, for example, the Yeatsian pomposity of family status, when in fact it could be said that the Yeatses were effectively shopkeepers. Although it must also be admitted in passing that Yeats at one stage wrote to Shaw to say that, you have laughed at the things that are ripe for laughter and not when the ear is still green. Presumably he wasn't including his own gargantuan lack of humor among the things that Shaw found ripe for laughter. However that may be, Shaw saw his family status firmly in the category of shabby genteel. But perhaps what is most significant about the family poverty, exacerbated by his father's drunkenness, which went hand in hand with the public persona of teetotalism, was that it gave the young Shaw his first opportunity to display the independence of spirit and dedication to the dignity of work that was to be his credo for the rest of his life. At the age of about 13, feeling that he should start being adult. He sought employment as a warehouse boy in the cloth merchant firm of Scott, Spain and Rooney on the Dublin Quays. About to be set to work by one of the partners, another, an older man, took one look at the little boy and sent him about his business, castigating his parents for their lack of consideration in trying to set such a young child to work. Years later, Shaw set down his gratitude in that preface to immaturity, also commenting ruefully that throughout his life, I wrote as my father drank. And that was prodigiously, with his output of 63 plays and the even more startling figure of 250,000 letters in the course of his long life, in which he poured out philosophy, advice, and ruminations, his preoccupations ranging across marriage, religion, government, healthcare, and social class, always social class. The belief in female dignity through the earning of one's own living in all circumstances was never to leave Shaw. He understood that belief in the dignity of work for its own sake usually got buried in that bitter struggle for survival which working class women and that women in such circumstances might long for release into idleness. And much though he deplored the principle, Far worse in his eyes was the situation of their educated middle class sisters who had the luxury of choice and all too often, again in his eyes, made the choice of idleness, or at best dabbling in employment when it suited them as a pretty little pastime, rather than seeing it as a lifelong commitment. In his campaigning days, Shaw had believed that when women became emancipated, they wouldn't merely win the right to work alongside men as they voted alongside them, but he believed they would be honest enough to want to, regarding paid employment as a duty as well as a right. He died still hoping. The neo-feminist notion of the right not to work was not the equality of class and gender Shaw envisaged, 
when with Beatrice and Sidney Webb, he founded the Fabian Society in 1884, which advocated a socialism based on reason and choice rather than revolution and blood. The logical follow-on to that was an educated thinking middle class. And once again, Shaw was in the vanguard when a year later, he co-founded the London School of Economics, which in the years since has been responsible for the educational formation of some of the most eminent liberal thinkers and politicians in the UK and indeed worldwide. By 1919, disappointment was beginning to seep through. Heartbreak House was written in that year, and the horrors of the First World War had mitigated the shining hopes of a rationally achieved international socialist society. It is said, he wrote, that every people has the government it deserves. It is more to the point that every government has the electorate it deserves. For the orators of the front bench can edify or debauch an ignorant electorate at will. Thus, our democracy moves in a vicious circle of reciprocal worthiness and unworthiness. The heartbreak is obvious, as the great man watched the devastated survivors of the trenches limp their way to oblivion the promised land fit for heroes, a myth and a betrayal that was to descend into the great strike of 1926. Reginald Golding Bright, who was later to become Shaw's agent, wrote to the great man in 1894. He was 20 years old and looking for advice on becoming a drama critic. Shaw replied that, it happens by accident, but when the accident happens, it happens to a journalist. It is to men who are already in the profession and known as men who can write and who know the ways of papers that editors turn when a vacancy occurs. Remember, to be a critic, you must be not only a bit of an expert in your subject, but you must also have literary skill and trained critical skill too. The power of analysis, comparison, etc. To qualify myself for the post I now hold on the staff of the world. The letter is a long one an extraordinary gesture of generosity to an unknown young man, and is the beginning of a correspondence, sadly, Golding Bright's side of it is no longer in existence, that continued until 1928, and is in itself a handbook for theater criticism. A few months later, having previously recommended that his young correspondent, thank you, write a book without seeking to have it published, he now says, you will never write a good book until you have written some bad ones. First time authors, take note. Shaw also advises the young Bright to leave home and cease being dependent on his father. Two months later, Bright having followed his advice, he writes exultantly to him, I congratulate you, especially on the fact that all your friends and relations regard you as a madman. That is an indispensable beginning to a respectable, independent life. But perhaps Shaw's most extraordinary and revealing correspondence was with Augusta Gregory. It began in 1909, a few months after the death of Singh. Lady Gregory sought Mr. and Mrs. Shaw's advice on producing a collection of his work. The subsequent letter from Shaw is detailed, practical, and as ever, extraordinarily helpful. And he goes on to ask if Lady Gregory's own plays are published. I should like to know where they can be got on occasion. Don't give them to me. Never give people books. I never read books that people give me. But when I buy them, I feel I have, to throw, uh, I have to read them or I will feel that I have thrown my money away. And let this sordid truth be your golden rule through life. The correspondence was to continue until 1931, the year before her death. 
and it never fails in its common sense offerings, its unfailing generosity of both spirit and finance. In fact, one has to conclude that Augusta Gregory was a pest, demanding his assistance in everything from the future of the Abbey through the education of her orphaned grandchildren to methodologies for getting the lane bequest returned to Ireland. True to form, of course, the old lady seldom took the advice she'd sought. But he never appears to feel personally exasperated, although flashes of rage do come through from time to time. She even demanded Shaw's help in writing and having published her book, Our Irish Theatre, which was published in New York in 1913. At the time, Shaw's mother was suffering a series of strokes and his wife was seriously ill while he was overseeing rehearsals of Captain Brassbound's conversion and Caesar and Cleopatra. Yet he found time to offer suggestions on her work and to joke that at the age of 56, he is violently in love with Mrs. Patrick Campbell because you told me I ought to. A lesser man would have told his dear Lady Gregory exactly where to get off. In the same year, he still manages to retain a sense of humor when Margaret Gregory, widow of Lady Gregory's son, asked him to be godfather to her infant daughter. The reply read, never. I am continually defending children against these outrages. How do you know she will not abhor my opinions or that I may not be hanged yet? Besides, if I undertook at the font to see to her religious education, I should do it. And then where would she be? But when Lady Gregory asked him in 1917 to lecture on settling the Irish question, his reply was explosive. The very words nation, nationality, our country, patriotism, fill me with loathing. Why do you want to stimulate a self-consciousness which is already morbidly excessive in our wretched island and is deluging Europe with blood? If we could only forget for a moment that we are Irish and become really Catholic Europeans, there would be some hope for us. Since my recent visit, that was to Ireland, I feel like putting up a statue to Cromwell. Not exactly a sentiment likely to appeal to either Yeats or Lady Gregory, despite it being uttered as thousands of young men were being slaughtered in the trenches of the First World War. Nor was he less forthright on the Abbey itself from time to time. In 1919, he resisted Lady Gregory's determination to stage Androcles and the Lion, believing the stage to be far too small and the required effects too complex. But he finally wrote, I wash my hands of Androcles. Let Mr. Sean Barlow do his worst, since you are resolved to murder my poor play. There is no use talking to you. You are simply the most obstinate and unscrupulous devil on earth, and I well know the vanity of remonstrance. In 1920, having attended a matinee of The Devil's Disciple, he wrote, an execrable performance, not improved by the hideous nervousness my presence set up. They are not up to my stage tricks anyhow, poor lambs. Essie was a helpless oaf, too young and unused to the stage for her job. Dick tried to be smart all through and had no suspicion that the part should be full of somber music. He was horribly discordant. Burgoyne was too nervous to make his words audible and so dropped most of his points. And Burgoyne, by the way, was played by the legendary F.J. McCormick. 
And the following year, in reply to yet another request for assistance, probably involving financial subscription, he wrote, I feel provoked to say that if the child needs so much nursing, it had better die. Why should it survive when so many other children are being killed? Let it go smash. Anyhow, I'm so utterly deadbeat by six months continuous work without even a Sunday out that I'm leaving London for a little tour of Wales or somewhere. And if the existence of the Abbey is incompatible with that, the Abbey shall perish. I think it should, uh, I should do you a good turn by demolishing it. Of course, as usual, he relented. But perhaps his underlying feeling is best illustrated by what he wrote in the Bristol Evening Post as late as 1946. It is folly to call the Abbey Shelter a national theater. It has a heroic history, but it never was a theater and never will be. Compared to the National Library and National Gallery, it's an insult to dramatic art. It might be taken merely as a condemnation of the original Abbey building, but the sideswipe of the company history reveals the great man's feelings concerning the venture itself, implying a certain lack of achievement. One might say it was inadvertent, except that George Bernard Shaw didn't do inadvertent. In a letter of thanks after staying at Cool in 1910, early in their acquaintance, Shaw wrote, the change from last night at Cool is very fearful, but the hotel is quite good, central entry. Cool, cool must seem very quiet now that I've stopped talking. One can only wonder if he knew then how much would be demanded of him in forthcoming years, how much he would have to say, and the revealing record that his correspondence with the old lady of Abbey Street would become in 1910, at the, at the request of Curtis Brown, Lady Gregory's literary agent, Shaw had written a eulogy for publicity purposes. Fortunately for the world, the public duty of nursing the Irish National Theatre thrust itself on her before it was too late. In those early days of the struggle of that institute, institution for existence, everybody had to do what they could. I must not say that the actors had to shift the scenes and the actresses to don the wardrobe, the authors to write the playbills and paint the scenes, and the managers to sweep out the box office and so forth. But I feel quite sure that whenever anything was wanted, whether it was a scrubbing brush or an Irish play, Lady Gregory was appealed to as general housekeeper to supply it. The scrubbing brush she bought and may even have wielded. Over the next 20 years, George Bernard Shaw put his energy, kindness, and eminence behind that opinion, usually tolerantly, always forthrightly, although the rest of us may doubt the likelihood of the autocratic Augusta on her hands and knees with a scrubbing brush. That was more likely to fall to the duty of a Sarah Allgood or a Moira O'Neill, since she imperiously regarded her actors in the same way she did her maids at Cool. Shaw's massive achievements brought him the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1925. His instinct was to refuse it, but his wife pointed out that acceptance would be good for Ireland, and he changed his mind, but he refused the monetary prize. A generation later, he turned down the Order of Merit. It was offered in 1946, with Britain once again in post-war ruins and facing the rebuilding of both society and infrastructure. Few men had contributed more to the intellectual world of an adopted country than had George Bernard Shaw, or indeed to his own, although we've yet fully to acknowledge our debt to him. But in his refusal, he claimed that merit in authorship could only be determined by the posthumous verdict of history. And I hope that what I've said this evening will add even the tiniest amount to the sum of our gratitude to a man who cared so much for Ireland, 
and so much for its people, as well, indeed, despite his sometime weariness with Augusta Gregory, as he did for the Abbey Theatre. Thank you all for coming. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Well, first of all, Roshin, I want to congratulate you on an absolutely fabulous um, adaptation of Shaw's Heartbreak House. I went to see it last night, and the energy on the stage, and what a stellar cast. Oh, they well are done. fantastic, and Abs thank you very much. It um, was really, really great, great to see it. And it's wonderful to see Shaw back on the Abbey stage. You know, you have three firsts with Pygmalion in 2011, Major Barber 2013, and now Heartbreak House. Mm. Um, why do you think Shaw was missing for so long? How do you know? Well, I'm not really sure. Mm. Um, I, I think I have a clear insight as to why he may have had a rebirth, mm -hmm. um, particularly under the current uh, directorship of the Abbey in terms of a civic sensibility. But more pertinently, um, well, I can talk about how Heartbreak House in terms of the outbreak of World War One and the drive to commemorate that, yeah. uh, and that being the main... Um, the main initiative of producing Heartbreak House. But it is an interesting question about mm. how come it fell off the map, because it's not just at the Abbey, um, that actually the Abbey, um, if you like, shared a parallel with most repertory theatres across the UK, mm -hmm. whereby in the late 50s, probably a little bit later in some of the UK um, theatres, but by the 70s, where the situation had been that definitely a Shakespeare and a Shaw would be standard in an annual or biannual rep. Mm -hmm. um, they had definitely fallen off the um, fallen off the mantle. Is that because of the content of the plays? Possibly, mm -hmm. form-wise, things shifted massively. Yes, through the different historical contexts. Exactly, in sixties, seventies, and theatre shifted hugely, um, but. It's probably also to do with the size of casts as well. Well, absolutely, and, uh, the productions are massive. Yeah, mm -hmm. and Tory governments, you know. <laughs> and what drew you into Heartbreak House? Well, one of my first instincts on reading it, it was Féach McNeil who gave me the script. It was his idea, and as I said, the Abbey chose it, um, not least to follow on with their former two productions mm -hmm. of Shaw, but also, um, and more specifically, because they wanted to find a way to commemorate World War I, the outbreak of World War I. And um, this was the play that they chose. And when Fiat gave it to me, one of my first instincts about it was, oh my goodness, this doesn't read like a Shaw at all. I was hugely okay. surprised. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I happen to love Shaw, mm -hmm. but that was intriguing to me to begin with. Um, the other part of that, or why I think it doesn't, is because it has a much more visceral, much more emotional, um, much more poetic, dare I say, heart than a lot of his plays that I would have been familiar with. Okay, and why do you, th why do you think that is? I think that in this play, he's dealing with um, the heart. He's mm -hmm. dealing with matters of the heart. He's dealing with the complex, the complexity of men and women. Mm -hmm. He's looking at a group of people um, who are frankly really self-obsessed, mm -hmm. who have very little to do other than to think about themselves mm -hmm. and to think about their emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to access that world, he had to he had to let go of perhaps his debate format 
and go to something potentially more fabulistic. And of course, he was exploring a dying way of life. Yes. The death of the, well, the decline, if you like, of the, the money classes. Yes, absolutely. Then. Who were never to be the same post-war, but there, there were flitters of that coming up to the outbreak of World War One, and a real um, blind, obstinate uh, kind of... Um, What's the word? Where they were, they were, they neglected their duties as um, the senior and most powerful class in in the United Kingdom, or as you say in your introduction, of, across Europe. Yeah, you know. exactly. They reflected all that from Russia and the moneyed states in Ireland as well went into decline. Yeah. Um, in that period of time, naturally enough, when they were going into decline in Britain, it was going to happen. Yeah. In a worst case scenario, um, in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. But he's hugely critical of that class and the lack of responsibility they take mm -hmm. towards um, their civic duties, if yes. you like. No. When he was a, a rampant socialist. Of course. Completely, yeah. completely. Yeah, but I think that the way in which he explores liberalism in this play mm -hmm. is um, really exciting as yeah. well because a lot of these individuals, they're not, it's not like they're capitalist, you know, that mm -hmm. they would have shared ideologically on paper a huge number of likenesses with Shaw. Yes. But he mocks that greatly in this because they don't actually put it into practice. No, they don't put it into practice. And you see, a lot of the, lot of the money was probably inherited money. And I think yeah. that that's what he, you know, part of the point of that play is where his money was, well, I know he married a very rich woman in the end, yeah. but a lot of his money was earned, mm. you know, and you had this, and the war changed the way everybody was thinking about things. Yep. You know, so that made a huge difference. Uh, I think at that time. Absolutely, and mm. there were stumbling blocks up until that point where mm. um, already this class had been disarmed financially, but they were ignoring it completely yes. because they didn't have they didn't the have skill the base yeah. to yeah. actually go to work. But more than that, you know, the central point in the play is about taking control, about leading, mm -hmm. and they they were unable to do that because they had spent so much time focusing on themselves. Yes. Mm. So how did you find your way into that? Well. Um, the madness and the zaniness and the charm of it mm -hmm. were very attractive to me. And mm -hmm. I knew that they were ways to, that were absolutely implicit in the text, but that they were also ways of engaging an audience. Yes. Um, because he, Shaw had access to many big country houses through his wife, but through his literary circles as well. Mm -hmm. So he would have, he went down and had a relatively brilliant time with uh, Virginia Woolf and crew, yes. yeah. Um, and on the one hand, he was really critical of her, and on the other, he professed his, his undying love to her. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that happened a lot with Shaw, didn't it? Though? It did, an yeah. awful lot, yeah. <laughs> he was. Um, <laughs> he liked the ladies, yeah. definitely. Because for all the um, negative elements of that world, mm. these characters, that class that was kind of on the brink of, mm. of crumbling, it's hugely attractive, that life. It's ultimately kind of a hedonistic, bohemian household. And um, that was really my in, was mm -hmm. to celebrate that and yes. to find the furthest point of that. Because it's funny, hopefully. <laughs> it's, it's very funny. And also, I think it's something that still appeals now. You know, yeah, we've watched course. Downton Abbey. We, yeah. we want to look into that life yeah. the whole yeah. time. So, and, and he did that particularly well yeah. uh, with that play. Um, you said in your interview to the Irish Examiner that um, you felt that some of the scenes were very uh, related to very current scenarios. And mm. what did you find with that? Well, or he's dealing what? with a gang of people who are um, 
self-obsessed mm-hmm. who are uh, quite... Who in mind. Who in mind. Well, I think that it's, you know, it's a contemporary, it's for yeah. a contemporary Dublin yeah. audience. And yes. I'm not saying everybody has those sensibilities, but yeah. there's no doubt that uh, there was you know, quite a big crisis in mm-hmm. this country, still, you know, yes. still elements and embers of that um, rumbling around and that some of it came from uh, indulgence in um, obsession with money, yes. in um, a laissez-faire attitude to mm-hmm. society. Yes, you know? yes. And, and creating that, that kind of, um, nearly creating a class war, Yet again, that mm. that arose in the Celtic Tiger, yeah. where people, but you don't know what was going on again behind the behind the doors. Yes, yeah. but I think as well, there, the, when this play becomes most poetic, mm. the messages uh, in Shaw's words mm. are really resonant for anybody and any time. Mm-hmm. He talks about the soul in a very romantic way, and it's hard not to be. Uh, I think melted by it and and intrigued. I think by. Yes. Um, what is real common sense but very hard to achieve you know. I suppose when he was looking at the themes of marriage and a lot of marriages even up to that point would have been arranged for Mm. you know to feed into estates and all that and I think that point with the shot over and Ellie where um, he said you know he was talking about her soul and you know marry for love and all that but she said in order to feed that she still needed money yeah so he, i think he was trying to tie the two things yeah so together he, yes i think the quote is um so uh but a soul is a very expensive thing to keep yes my soul needs beautiful people needs concerts needs and now i'm misquoting sure yeah which is probably and really music inappropriate, and, but, um, and art <laughs> yeah yes. and uh and then he says in, in she says in this country mm-hmm. Uh, you can't have a soul without money. Yes, know? yes. But yeah, the counter argument is if you sell your soul, you will eat, but you won't live. Yes, you know? yes. So it's a uh, complex message. Yeah. I think that's one of the things with Shaw's plays is there's very little resolution. You could talk yeah. them to death because he's presented both sides. Yeah. So you can, you know, Which fall is where I always dispute the argument that he is didactic and yeah. heavy handed. Mm. Uh, he can be. Uh, his arguments can be laden, I think, sometimes, yes, and yeah. sometimes a little laborious. Mm. But uh, he always gives a balanced um, version of things. Yeah, there is you know. no play that he has written that I have read, and I think I've read them all now at this stage, where there is resolution. Yes. None of them. I mean, it's a funny thing, though, in this, where he, the people he chooses to kill is interesting. Yes, yes. The capitalists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which mm. is... Maybe a little bit biased. Yeah, a little bit biased. Um, Your ensemble cast is absolutely so strong, every single member. But for me last night, watching the performance, I felt that the women owned the stage. That was one of the big attractions for me to Mm. this piece, Mm -hmm. that there are four really amazing female roles Mm -hmm. in this play. and it's another thing that Shaw is looking at. Whilst I don't consider it a feminist play, the women are definitely stronger in terms of capacity, voice, and mm-hmm. uh, potential to alter things than, than the men. However, they live in a society where there isn't access to the power necessary with the outbreak of World War One to mm-hmm. 
two ultra things, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, and they're brilliant. I must oh, they say. were absolutely the just, just fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at the costumes, looking at the the blonde hair, the black yeah. hair, and then the young girl, yeah. and all the striking colours. That was. Uh, you know, I had at one stage, I was saying to Lisa earlier that I had um, this vision of Macbeth with the three mm. women. Yeah. You know, well, it's funny. You especially when Hector was in the room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. <laughs> and that's part of it, I think, that we've been trying to compound mm. that the, the three women fascinate mm. him on some level, mm. you know. Mm. But the Shakespearean reference is really, is really interesting because Shaw did say glibly, but he did say that Shotover, who's the central, he's the patriarch of the family uh, in Heartbreak House, but he's also probably the lead in a play with kind of loads of leads. But mm -hmm. it's, yeah, yeah. Um, he's the linchpin, really, of the story, isn't mm -hmm. he? And uh, he did say that Sh that Shotover was his leer. Yes. So there's another way of looking at those three women, rather than the witches, mm -hmm. as being um, Goneril Regan and... Yeah. and uh, the daughters of New York. I can't yeah. remember the third one. Anybody? <laughs> Cordelia. Cordelia, Cordelia, the yes, good of one. Course. We only remember the bitches, you <laughs> yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, um, the development of Ellie's character in the production yeah. was very, very interesting. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, I suppose it's the most tangible arc in mm. the piece in that mm -hmm. she has, in the conventional drama, mm. a situation where an event happens to her and she's an inalterable in occasion means that her life is change forever yes. um, yeah it's a big ask really but I think um, Lisa Dwyer Hogg does a beautiful job fantastic yes yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and I, I guess that's the cleanest through line of Shaw's plotting of the notion of heartbreak as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. we're asked to believe that she has fallen for a man who is um, uh, pure romance and sentiment and that very quickly she finds out that he was duping her Mm -hmm. And that that's her first bull to the heart. But in fact, the journey becomes much more complex because she is due to marry a very wealthy man. And um, he has also duped her, it would yes. seem. Yeah. And uh, she is to make some really bold decisions. But then there's a big twist in the tale where, again, the poetry sort of takes over and this notion of soulmate comes in. Mm -hmm. And she gets a whole different pro proposition. Yeah. Or creates one for herself. Um, so it's a huge arc. Yeah, um, and I thought it was very defined by the costume change. Yeah. You know, when she was in the simple calico kind of yeah. dress and young girl, and then she came out in that beautiful blue. Yeah. And you could see that it nearly, you know, rose her bearing, if you like. Yeah, And yeah. that she became stronger. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it is really difficult. She, she has lines like, um, well, perhaps you don't know why I was a very nice girl this morning, yeah. and then now neither a girl nor very nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a lot of... Actimening to do that really doesn't it? It no. does, yeah. And actually, and I thought <laughs> that that's ass, really. But I think she does brilliantly. Oh uh, yeah, definitely yeah. moved the the dramatic momentum uh, yeah. along without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that you're plotting that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the marriage topic is extremely strong um, and forefronted in the play. And why would you say Shaw's? What would you say Shaw's purpose was for doing this? I think that um, the kind of practical side of it is mm. that. At the time, marriage was about estates and sharing estates yes. and about female ownership. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's really important when you think about currency mm -hmm. and him relating currency to the soul and to the mind and to the body mm -hmm. and where all that lives. Um, 
I think as well, though, this is called Heartbreak House and it's a play about matters of love mm-hmm. and where love and marriage meet is um, obviously of great fascination to a man who had a marriage that was really distinctive yes. in that mm-hmm. it was never consummated mm-hmm. by choice. Um, you know, and that is very complex, really, in terms of how he views women and how he presents them and how he thinks marriage should be and could be. You know? Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think it's about currency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about future and about life changes. Yes. Um, but I think it's also about the heart mm-hmm. and love. Mm-hmm. He's exploring it completely. Yeah. Sally Peters, uh, in an article that you wrote, said that Shaw was a feminist in spite of himself. Yeah. How, what would you think of that? Well, I would have said that Shaw wanted to be a feminist, but the time spited him. Uh, I think that even for such a progressive mind and individual, mm-hmm. he never fully conceived of pure equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he definitely thought as a socialist and man of the world, that there was an unfairness there. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have the skills, really, to fully project uh, into the future. I mean, do any of us yet? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, absolutely. You know, to, to really um, embrace that. But I think it's unfair in spite of himself, because, in fact, I most of what I've read, he is... Um, there is a desire, at least, to be respectful for the notions of equality. Absolutely. It's not manifest. But I think you know. it's, you know, it's middle-class socialism. And, I mean, we discussed this before where, um, and even with the women that were looking for suffrage that time, um, mm. the, the lower classes weren't kind mm. of included in mm. that, and they were still working in the match factories, yeah. which was... Um, very cleverly dealt with in the play last night as yeah. well. The, yeah, the uh, match strike the match, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think Be- that really resonates though. Because uh, Shaw had a whole thing on that, because yeah. uh, in um, Mrs. Warren's profession, yes, he talks and about um, Mrs. Warren's sister who um, got burnt with all the sulphur and yeah. in in the. So that was something that was very much um, on his mind. Yeah, I think at that time. But I think it's fair to say that most ideologies. Mm. Um, I'm afraid are generated and initially managed by the uh, by the middle classes until there's an opportunity to spread. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, not negating that, but uh, yes, it's it's not the most potent feminism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, there's an obvious co- uh, commemoration for World War One in the production. Mm. Um, and I felt that it was a very respectful approach. Um, and I really loved, and I, I, for a minute I wondered, did I dream it? But like a little hologram over the set at mm. the end where you had the lines of white crosses. Mm. Um, and I found that really kind of hit my heart last oh, night, good. to be quite honest. And I was just wondering, you know, was it kind of a nod to all the men that were ostracised that fought in the British Army? you know, the Irishmen that fought in the British Army and, you know... Yeah, I think that our aim was to commemorate Mm -hmm. and I think that um, that means everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how... I think that the audience in Dublin will have a specific lens to free to see that through it's just a small moment in the oh piece. it's just it's but um, it's very poignant yeah I hope yeah. so um, yeah. but I didn't it wasn't really a name about um this theme of reclaiming um the Irishman's dignity and pride who, who fought in World yeah. War One most of whose stories it sounds like have been hidden in attics yeah although of course it would but be it was something, something as the as the, the um the 
bombs were going on the stage last yeah. night. That was the first thing that I thought about when I saw those white yeah, crosses. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think that's really important. Yeah, and I don't know whether it's that because there's been so much on the radio yeah, and that yeah. over the last while, you yeah. know. Uh, do you see any um, resonance of Shaw's Irishness in that play? Um, do you know, I don't really. Yeah. And even casting Nurse Guinness as Dublin... There's some of it. I think it's actually written as Yorkshire. Like I don't, I don't see a huge amount of it. I know that this is your thesis, but yeah, not, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't yeah. actually. Um, I mean, he is, he is who he is. This fascinating man who grew up in Sing Street, you know, yes. and, and of course, then that's ever present there. Mm -hmm. And him as an outsider is probably the most, the biggest way in which you see it because he's examining ultimately a foreign culture and maybe that's what makes it so potent yes but i don't see irishness in the play i'm afraid no okay okay um uh, so we're coming to the com commemoration of uh, 1916 mm. and i was thinking it would be lovely to have john bull's other island on the mm. stage because it would be 100 years also from the first time that it was actually <coughs> produced in the abbey even though it was written for the abbey for 1904 where yates um turned it to, he asked Shaw to write it apparently, mm. uh, though there is a, you know, a disagreement over that, they were like two stags yeah. um, strutting around each other um, but it would be lovely to see that on the stage and I think it would follow through from Heartbreak House because I the agree. mystical um, track that you talk about in that play is there but also I think to look at the Irishness in Heartbreak House you have to really look at John Bull's Other Island because you have Broadbent in uh, John Bull's Other Island mm. who comes over to plant the Garden City in Roscullen. Yeah. So you have the kind of the Gombean men there. And Mangan also comes across in Heartbreak House yeah. as that part of that syndicate that's there in Jumbo. I think Jumbles. that's true to say, and he was inspired by, is it Ebenezer? Ebenezer Howard, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Who is the Garden City man, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who was not Irish, though, either. No, no, he wasn't. No, um, no, no. No, but so... Tell me your idea then that that it's that Mangan is basically as an outsider has an Irish sensibility. Yes, has yeah. an Irish sensibility, we and he's the middleman. You know, yeah. like you had the Gambian men for the landlords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's something else. We thought about um, casting that Irish. I did mm -hmm. at least because the name as well. You Mangan know. and Don as well yeah. is an Irish name. I know. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. So yeah. There they're are... all in there. Yeah. But um, my choice not to do that mm -hmm. was based on the fact that he is, um, if you like, the most unattractive character in the play, and I just felt uncomfortable with putting on a production where the persona non grata was. Um, Irish. Yes, yes. The only I, one, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, it did cross my mind. Yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Very Stay much. tuned for future podcast interviews with actors Eleanor Methvin and Niall Boogie.